before we get started this time out, I just wanted to put a content advisory out there for you. At around minute 52, 53, 54, depending on how the mix goes, the discussion gets into some of the evidence of mental abuse and sexual coercion by comic book writer Warren Ellis. Um, that had bubbled up on social media the day that we were recording this. It makes sense in context, and I'd even argue that to not bring it up would have been more inappropriate given the context. However, I know that's not a topic you'd expect in a conversation about what is ostensibly a kid's TV show. So I just wanted to give you that heads up. It goes on till about the hour and 12 minute mark, give or take. So if that's something you just don't really want to deal with, uh, you can skip ahead. Um, but there it is. Wanted you to know. I'm Noah Nelson, host of the No Prestinium Podcast, a show about immersive theater, VR, escape games, basically everything immersive. But this isn't that. While we're hosting this bonus series on the No Pro Podcast feed, this is a show all about the 2017 DuckTales TV series. It features our longtime collaborator, writer Zay Amsbury, and myself as we dive into the treasure trove that is the DuckTales reboot. This show is called Web Toes, the DuckTales Footnotes. This is a show for people that have seen or are watching the series, an exploration of theme and storytelling, and it goes all over the place. Think of it as the late-night dorm room conversation between people who should probably be working on their post-doctorates, but who aren't in the academic food chain anymore. In other words, this is one of those shows. If you like that kind of show, we hope you like this, and you should really, really watch this version of DuckTales. This episode gets into three of the episodes of the show. Living Mummies of Tothra, Impossible Summit of Mount Neverest, and The Spear of Selene. And with that, we hope you enjoy the show. All right. Um, anything else you wanted to do before we jump into the into the mix? Uh, no, just uh, nice to hear your voice, man. Uh, good, yeah. to hear, good to hear your voice, too. Um, I'm a little excited because Anthony decided to start watching, so maybe he'll catch up with us and, and be able to join us Ooh. at some point. Oh, that would be lovely. I you I think you, you had a tweet or a Facebook something the other day where you posted something like, uh, "I have to I have to do adulting for just a little bit more today, and I do not want to do it." And he posted, you know, I'm paraphrasing both of you, but he posted something like, "Like I feel you, I'm right up in it," and I just felt. And my heart just went out to both of you. Yeah, part of me is embarrassed to use the adulting thing because that's such a millennial thing. And as a mm-hmm. as, as a as a zennial, right, or or or, mm-hmm. or barely a zennial, uh, I, I don't feel entirely, you know, I do not feel completely of either Gen X or millennial. You know, like we 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 grew, we're we're clearly Gen X, but. Uh-huh. we're we're so late stage of it like the change <laughs> right. Right? right you know it's like you can I, almost i mean I, i'm starting to actually feel bad for the millennials because they they jumped right from being shit on by boomers and then they had like a brief shining moment of shitting on boomers and now generation z is already coming for them yeah, yeah. like they didn't it's it's happened so fast. Just just a just a total total. I don't know if you saw that. Um, 
there was like a, a tweet. Uh, maybe I even sent it. To, I should if I if I haven't, I I definitely uh, messengered it to uh, a few people. So I, I I have it. I can go grab it. But it was it was just four screenshots of Gen Zers just ripping millennials to hell, and it was just like, and it was um, done in the context of it said, as the parent of two Gen Z kids, I can confirm Gen Z is Gen X's revenge. And I, I saw that, and I was like, oh, what is this? That's sweet. And then it was just, it was just, just brutal absolutely brutal. Yeah. and you know as anything that would come out of the spawn of gen x not entirely fair i want to say like we yeah. you know to be gen x is to is to to understand playing dirty it's different from bad faith right right it's just right. like you you grew up and this is the thing that does and it and it just definitely distinguishes zennials from normal millennials i my big thing my huge thing about our generation is um uh, the threat of nuclear war and yeah. being aware of and conscious of of that being able to annihilate you there was a mini comic i saw somehow in comic relief back when we were kids right so but both like you and i were, were probably both already going there but like not at the same time so we weren't running into each other uh um, god i missed that old school that oh, old store yeah and i'm totally i'm talking about you know university location yep. you know, around oh i know i know yeah yeah for those who, well, for, for anyone else who might be listening, like the one other, I don't think anyone else does. Maybe if my friend Ben Ebert bothered to listen, he would know. Uh, but that's that's about that. Oh God, and and there's there's things in the comics world we're not going to talk about today, uh, though we got to talk about once it's offline because like holy shit. Um, no, I can't. I, I. Yeah, not not on the recording. Not on the recording. Yeah. Uh, this no. is sacred. This is sacred time. Um, Anyway, the the point was this is the whole the preamble before I announce like what episodes we're doing. Apologies, everybody, but Ducktales is a very Gen X thing, so this is on brand. Um. Uh, anyway, it was like a four paneler, and it was these kids. It was like of kids playing in a sandlot with their Star Wars toys. Uh, basically, uh, and it was like an autobiographical thing of someone. I think some gal that was basically just about how they were scared of nuclear war when they were like you know playing with star wars toys in the sandlot at school and i saw that and i i must have been 13 years old when i saw it and i identified so heavily with it i was just like oh my god that's the maybe it was, maybe it was later maybe it was 18 or 19 and i was like that was that's just it just like being aware conscious of like tomorrow we may all die yeah because somebody yeah you know and and maybe that's why, like, the current era, I don't know, like, I get people accusing me of being uh, fear-mongering, someone said I was doing uh, last week, um, and, uh, you know, being, being you know, paranoid or this other thing because of, like, all the things with the virus. And I'm like... Oh, I, because you're the person who remembers that there's a pandemic, pandemic happening? On. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not scared. I'm not paranoid. I'm angry, but 
but I don't, I don't, I don't, there's no nerves here. It's exactly like knowing that there's some fool who could drop the bomb on us at any moment. You know, it's, 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 it's not only, it's not only that, but it, but it's like, I mean, when you talk about that, I flash back to, there was a night when I was a little kid when my mom, my stepdad, my, my half sister and I went up to the roof of our house in uh, downtown Richmond <clears throat> to watch a lunar eclipse. And we're up there and, and I grew up in, I mean, this is downtown Richmond. I mean, the, like the family across the street would shoot guns into our house and, you know, I would get all sorts of static cause I'm biracial and my mom's white, my stepdad's black and all this stuff. And we're on the roof. A bunch of other people in the neighborhood are out looking at this. We're looking up and the, the shadow is starting to eat the moon. And then this light, this very distant light starts going across the starscape. And of course it was a satellite, but my first thought was it's an airplane that's gonna drop a bomb on us and we're all going to die. And my stepfather started, you know, comforting me. Uh, my sister was too young and my mom was also trying to comfort me, but you know, and uh, I flash onto that image because it, like, it's not only that there was an existential threat, but it was the last existential threat that we had as a coherent superpower, like as conceived of as this one big superpower and there was another big superpower and there was this one thing this like finite localized thing that could come in and destroy us yeah. and after night after after um the ussr breaks up the existential threats are diffuse and weird and hard to locate and like super millennial you know yeah super millennial hard to locate uh systemic in ways that it's very hard to focus people on mm. like i think maybe that's the thing about the current moment is we found focus again you know um although like people people want to get back in i mean you can see that right now with the way people are reacting to the pandemic there's this desire to go back to the diffuse to not have something acute to and and God forbid the American public is ever able to focus on two crises at once. Um, like they just want to, oh, new, oh, oh, we're focused on a different problem now. Okay, the other one doesn't exist anymore. Story's moved on, right? right. Um, which, you know, if if you were a good student of, you know, a certain type of hybrid episodic and serialized narrative storytelling, you would realize that no, the story, the story didn't move on. It was, you know, put on the B plot for a while, but it's going to come back and be very important. Which brings us to <laughs> the, our latest edition of the podcast, where we will talk about the following three episodes: the Living Mummies of Top Ra, uh, the Impossible Summit of Mount Neverest, and. Uh, <laughs> segue that was intended for this one and this one alone the spear of Celine. well um, done mr noah Nelson. 
you know, if you spend 25 years working in public radio, you should be able to pull a segue out of a common conversation. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't, you learned nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, I feel like when I was one, I'm so glad we're doing this again. I watched these last night. Uh, I, I realized I was nostalgic for, nostalgic for the beginning of the pandemic. <laughs> right? Very much so. I was like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember this vibe. It was great. I was, <laughs> I was still smiling at the theme song and I cried at the exact same moment I cried in episode 10 was the first time I cried when I watched this show for the first time and I cried in the same spot. So, uh, but we'll get there. We've got a few to go through first. So, um, living mummies of Tothra, uh, I'll read the slug here on Disneyfandom.com. Uh, in a lost pyramid, Louis interprets a Pharaoh's prophecy to his advantage, forcing Scrooge and Launchpad to convince a group of living mummies to rescue him. Uh, I just want to say this, uh, this tagline, uh, uh erases webby uh in a way that is not great mm, that's um, true because this is definitely uh <laughs> the beginning of, early on this episode in like the inciting incident it's literally like they're 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 all skating down a chute in a pyramid and webby and louie are moved off one way and everyone else has moved off the other and you're like oh this is a webby louie episode <laughs> because because the episodes pretty much are at least in this part of it, and for the most part going forward, it, the division is Webby and one of the boys, everybody else is the yeah. usual breakdown. Or Webby and Lena, or Webby and... So it, there's always... That's how the squad always breaks out. It's like, whoever's with Webby, and that's one plot. And then, you know, other folks. I think there's there's episodes coming up where... There's other combinations, but it's oh, it's almost always other combinations with Webby. I think there's one or two episodes where we don't see that. Um, what was your what was your what was your vibe here on this one? Well, I think that it may be important for me to get is personal the word I I, I don't know I. Because you and I held off on coming back to this. I think it was sort of at my uh, 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 instigation. Um, I said that I wasn't quite ready. And and it's funny because uh, I just wanted to talk to you again. And I just wanted to watch something that was sort of hovering outside of the various embedded crises that were going on. The A plot, the B plot, and the comic runner, which is, let's face it, still kind of depressing. Um, and uh, I was excited to get back to it, and and I open up the first episode, and it is an episode that pulls from the iconography of ancient Egypt, which a is African, b uh, is Egypt, which is a place I've I've long loved. I spent a, a month in Egypt last year. And I was sort of immediately kind of hesitant and scared and worried about how it would roll out. And I stopped watching. <laughs> I almost texted you. And then I listened to our first three episodes, which makes me the 
like third person who's listened to those three episodes. And and I was it was heartening. It was heartening because of the way you and I engage with this material, uh, which is wide ranging and a little free associative. Um, and I think uh, with a lot of joy and verve and fun. And I missed that. Um, so I went back to the episode and I watched the whole thing. And I have to say, I had a hard time with this episode because of the way that it engaged with uh, Egyptian, ancient Egyptian iconography. Yeah, definitely, definitely it, hit, it hit different for me, too, watching it this time than the first time. How so? I, you know, the, the fact that the plot hinges on an uprising. <laughs> right, right, right. I was like, whoa. I was like, I was really like, oh, huh. Okay. Like, and, 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 and that made me, it made me sit there and go like, all right. Like, I, I wasn't, I wasn't digging too deep into the Egyptian and, and, and African connotations uh, of the setting but the fact that it was an uprising against uh an oppressor uh an oppressor who was um a uh uh all based on a, a lie a systemic yes. system of power that was being perpetuated by the palace guards uh in order to enrich themselves on the labor of everyone else a system that was handed down um, over the course of generations uh, and a people who were awoken to their the, the injustice of their uh, condition through the most ridiculous way, uh, but also kind of a weirdly, I don't think it's Marxist, but the fact that like Scrooge gives a speech about freedom, but then they watch everyone then everyone watches Launchpad eat a burrito, and the the fact that there's something uh, a simple good that they are denied is enough to galvanize them. And I'm sitting here, and it, I mean, I definitely started because of the insurrection thing. I was like, you know, started to be very conscious of the fact that there's there's species and there's sort of speciesism in ducktales to some degree yes. like the beagles are criminal right like what's the coding there and there but there isn't but and that's close as you get to like race um but then like you know the 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 living mummies were you know a mix of like you know anubic dog people and kind of owl people or birds whatever like not yeah, it was a little. It was a little unclear if they were meant to be um, uh, um, Egyptian hawks or perhaps ibises, yeah. or it was. It was, yes. and if the the dog people were meant to be jackals, it was yeah. unclear. Yeah, it's like this is kind of really, you know, and 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 just that this is how, like, knowing that. I mean, one of the things we do, like, we engage with a lot of joy. We also dig in a little bit. But we're also conscious of like these are things where that are still targeted like like Star Wars is targeted like all Disney products are targeted at developing minds <laughs> let's say 
Yeah. Let's 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 not worry about age and worry about developing, right? It's concerned well, with well. One of the other things I I did before uh, going back into this, listening to our previous um, our previous uh, episodes, one of the conversations that we had that really struck me. Um, I'm not not because like it was a scintillatingly brilliant, just because it was interesting in this new context. Um, was talking about how stories that teach morals or ethics, stories that are there to teach a lesson, have been uh, uh, moved out of mainstream, moved out of certainly the fine art world, moved out of um, pop art into uh, kids shows, you know, because kids shows are, or even family shows, but certainly kids shows, are exact therefore instruction and so looking at ducktales as a set of uh, instructions or lessons uh, that are based on the relationship between these three young boys and this super duper rich adventurer and how those those lessons evolve um, make this material that's worthy of really engaging with and that also helped me uh, want to get back into all this get back to your point though because when i when i said it like it hit differently for me i didn't actually intend to go on a rant um so your your experience of the material because of your relationship to the the place the material is based off of sort of felt like with the direction we were headed yeah well it's ancient egypt is this very weird set of uh, images that we all have. And most of those images are not accurate in the sense of there's a, there's a vast treasure trove, treasure trove, Egypt, funny. There's a vast treasure trove of, um, of like we don't understand e ancient Egypt very well. It seems like we do because of all the images that we've gotten over the years and the discovery of King, of, uh, King Tut's tomb and all this stuff. But really, we, even though we have a lot of artifacts, we don't really understand it very well. So how it's depicted becomes a bit of a, of a, it says a lot more about the person telling the story than it does about ancient Egypt itself most of the time. And in this case, it was really a little regressive and a little basic and a little, um, um, uh, God, a little 19th century. Um, but what was interesting was like, as the story moved forward, because the revolution that you're talking about, it's not, as you say, it's not at the instance, or it's not at the, um, uh, it doesn't happen because of the people. It happens because of the, folks who've come there uh, the sort of adventurers slash colonizer type folks who've come into to uh who come into the environment who who destabilize the whole thing um and then it moves forward to um the other thing you were talking about which is how these um these sort of courtiers or soldiers are manipulating the image of the pharaoh in order to create this uh, exploitative system 
Um, but then what was interesting was that Pharaoh, because up until a certain point there, the story's messing with the idea of a mummy. Like it's a living mummy in the sense of not like a walking, not like a walking stumbling mummy, mummy, but these people are real and alive. And the only reason why they're dressing that way is to, um, is because of the, the iconography of the fake Pharaoh, who's sort of like a puppet. Um, but then it turns out that the Pharaoh is real, that the mummy is real. Like the mummy appears um, as, um, as that sort of scary mummy that we imagine from from the movies. Um, you know what? I'm totally fumbling right now. I totally forgot what I was saying. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're definitely on track in terms of you just like what's what happens, right? It's like we 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 shift from this mode, and it is. It, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it doesn't. It feels like it doesn't have too much to say. Right. Oh, like, that's right. Wait, yeah, that that's what it was. Yeah. So I was the, the the moment that grabbed me, the moment where I thought something interesting was going to happen with all this Egyptian, ancient Egyptian iconography, was you've got Louis, who is the evil twin, yeah. one who is the most greedy, who, who and all he wants to do is take the treasure. His relationship to all to everything in the pyramid is I'm going to take the treasure. It's going to be mine. Webby keeps warning him against the curse, uh, which is another classic ancient, ancient Egyptian trope. And as the the actual pharaoh, the actual mummy of the pharaoh, the actual spirit of this, uh, whatever it actually was back in the day when it was alive, is rampaging and being very dangerous to, to everyone, Louis has this moment of self-awareness where he, he, he has the... Um, the sort of the sickle um, that is the thing that activated the curse, he thinks. And he kneels down in front of the Pharaoh and he confesses. He confesses his sins. He he offers honor and obeisance to the rampaging Pharaoh. And I thought in that moment, some it was gonna veer in some way. Like yeah. the the the, the way they'd set up what the mummy is would be subverted because that seemed to be what a lot of what the show does and what the show does in the next two episodes and what the show did in the beginning when these people dressed as mummies are actually alive, etc. But that's not what happens. He gets Tata, down on Tata Tata just says, die. Right? He just like, says, die. Yeah. Like, it's like he, he, Louis asks him, what do you want from me? Right? right, like Louis, Louis, you know, who talks his way in and out of things. That was the whole thing. It's like, look, you know, if I, if I can talk, I can talk my way out of it, right? And, and, and the, I mean, like, the only thing I derive from it is like the idea that, like, a lesson for Louis that, like, you can't always talk your way out of things. <laughs> like, some things right, are implacable but... forces of, you know, destruction. I don't know. But he was being sincere in that moment, and know? he was like, you could, like, like he was. I mean, it definitely read to me like he did what he did in order to get the mummy to stop because it was endangering everybody. He knew just how badly right. he effed up. Right. And it, it seemed a little, for what this show has done in the past and for what it does in uh, the next two episodes, it, it seemed a little um, 
it seemed to lack interrogation of Egypt, of ancient Egyptian iconography, which is really par for the course, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It, it was of the, I feel like these three episodes, you know, they, they build up to get, you know, stronger as they go. Um, oh, I agree. You know, like there's, there's no, there's no, no question. And almost to the point where like the living mummies of Tathra, I wouldn't call it a filler episode, but it, it, it definitely feels like, hey, we want to have a mummy in the opening sequence. We, <laughs> I guess we should do an episode with a mummy. And, you know, for all I know, this might be based off of, um, because I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a Karl Barks uh, scholar. Uh, this might be based off of an episode uh, of something. Um, I tried to figure that out. I tried to, um, near as I can tell, I mean, it, Near as I can tell, Tothra, Tothra specifically is original to this episode. And I think specifically the reason why I found this disappointing, and I mean, just to just have the upbeat, uh, I agree with, I think these three episodes are like a little anti-colonial trilogy that definitely like clicks up and up and up in terms of what that, what anti-colonialism can be. This episode, because it doesn't seem to really interrogate ancient Egyptian iconography, was particularly disappointing only because I've been really boning up on trying to understand the original the the original progression of the black power movement. And one of the big levers of scholarship that led up to the black power movement was the reclaiming of ancient egypt for africa which had long been um sort of siphoned off or colonized by rome by the golden dawn by um by situating ancient egypt as a step on the course that led inexorably to western civilization when in fact it is a product of Africa. And in this context, in this moment, to see that iconography used without interrogation, especially in a show that does it so well in so many other ways, um, was a little disappointing for me. Also looking as I dig in here a bit into DuckTales' own his DuckTales' history, um, apparently the seventh episode and the second regular episode of DuckTales, because the first five episodes were the intro movie, um, is Sphinx for the Memories, and that this uh, episode is apparently loosely ba based on it. Got it. Um, and uh, this is the one that has, like, Donald as the garbled one. And apparently um, it's this episode does not exist on Disney Plus or the digital releases. like. For whatever reason, mm -hmm. it's been con concealed, and it's one of the few episodes of Duck of that Ducktales actually has Donald in it. Um, mm. Well, I will say, no lie, it swings for the memories is uh, that's pretty great. Yeah, it's it's really good. That's a good it's a good title. Um, and so then maybe that's that's their reason for doing it is is some sort of you know going going through the the old the old motions. Um, doing doing you know homage episodes because it it yeah there's there's a thinness here um 
uh, particularly the, the fact that everything hinges on burritos. Um, you know, well, in the not, sense of like the writers were hungry that day, you know. And not for nothing, for a couple of California boys, I mean, burritos are are fraught in many, many, many different ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's be clear. I got a burrito today because of this episode that I watched last night. Like, I, Dude, I just, if I could get a California burrito oh, in my paws right now. I'm sorry. Oh, man. I shouldn't have said that. That's I, I didn't even realize how cruel what I was saying was. There's there's I have I have I ever told you the tale? I must have told you the tale of the cal the, the one true California burrito place that opened up in Prospect Heights. No. Wait, no, I don't, I don't. So you know, if I if I haven't heard it, I would love to hear it again. So um, and. Lucas Kresch, who's an old friend of ours. Mm -hmm. uh, he's in Germany these days, if memory serves. He is in Germany these days, and he likes to lord it over me every time I feel like I have COVID-19. Um, uh, he told me one day that he ran across a genuine California burrito place in Prospect Heights. I did not believe him. This was before the great taco revolution of New York City. Uh, this was before you, before you could get any sort of California-esque uh, Mexican food in New York at all. And so he and I went to this place that he'd walked by and the place was this little hole in the wall that had like a burrito making line as they do at Gordo, etc. And the whole place was fully outfitted with uh, San Francisco Giants paraphernalia. The guy who was making the burrito had a, had a, had a San Francisco Giants hat and we were talking with them and they were a family who lived in the mission who grew up in the mission, who had a burrito place in the mission. And for a family reason, they had to move to Brooklyn. And so they started a burrito place in Brooklyn. And their burritos were full on California burritos. And no. it was glorious. I want to know when Zay, says, when Zay says California burritos, for those who aren't in California uh, or who may be in a part of California and you think California burritos, specifically we're talking about the mission burrito, which yes. is a phenomenon born in the mission district of san francisco um if you've eaten at a chipotle which i will admit i eat at chipotle uh chipotle is the uh attempts of a denver-born san francisco trained chef to make a mission burrito so it's a big tortilla with rice and beans launch pass says your choice of meat uh, <laughs> uh if you so choose meat um and then there's a there's a line so there's all the things you would you would pick out just like you know it, it literally the the form of of a chipotle is exactly the form that a burrito uh spot uh you know in in the mission district takes famously well, truly infamously, from my point of view, uh, Nate Silver of 538 one year spent an entire uh, year doing a, a trying to statistically determine, like through math, what the best burrito in the United States was by having mm -hmm. like people go to different ones and ranking them and yada, yada, spent a whole year doing it. And, and, and I was always dodgy about 538 as it was. Uh, this is, I think, even, this might even, this might have just been just after the, he left the New York Times, and 
goes through all of this just to wind up with El Farlito in the mission, which is like the Ur burrito place in the mission. It's like the one that like most people will swear by, but like maybe you don't swear by because you're you're partial to the one that's across the street or two doors down from it, right? Like you've got your spot if it's if you're in the mission of the ones that have survived the mission. It's been so long. I don't know which ones are still there. Um, yeah. or or you're a person who's like you're you maybe you grew up in the East Bay, and so for you it was probably Gordo's. Um, you know, which had outlets, uh, on college and Solano and a couple other spots. I think, I think they may be down one or two. I hope they're still around. I don't know. Uh, my ties are, are so. Not only is the one on college still there, but the dude who is, who was making my burrito 15 years ago is still there. Fantastic. So, uh, long and short about Nate Silver spends spends resources just to come up with something that anyone in San Francisco would have told you. <laughs> um, and then proceeds to get the 2016 election wrong. So why we listen to Nate Silver, I don't know. Uh, I well, will forever hold it over him that he spent all when, that time just to tell down, you anyone. When, when he shut down, it was still 25% possibility for Trump. We'll give him a lot of crap for that. But yeah. the, sad, the sad denouement for the Prospect Heights. No. Mission Burrito story is after a year and a half of me going there probably once a month. Roll in there one afternoon, and the dude, the San Francisco Giants hat, is not there. There's a new dude, and this dude is wearing a New York Yankees hat. And let me tell you, that burrito was not good. doesn't yeah yeah it was the rolling it was the quality of the of the components i don't know if they were importing their um avocados but the avocados took a huge step down and it was just uh i mean i might as well have been at los toros or chipotle it was not great no good no good whatsoever that makes me that makes me sad. Also, I, I go to Lucas would always give me crap about going to Chipotle, but he didn't <laughs> when I was here. But he he didn't he doesn't understand that Los Angeles doesn't have Mission Burrito joints. Los Angeles is a taco town. Um, yes. And and if you're gonna go to a taqueria here, you're not getting you're no you're gonna get a taco that's the proper thing to do and there are many different options and if you're gonna get a burrito you're gonna get you know kind of a a a more traditional just like a bean and rice you know maybe a bean and cheese you know burrito uh which which is what i understood coming from southern california to northern california as a kid when i when i first time encountered a mission burrito i was like what the hell is why is all this crap in my burrito Mm. i was really like what um, and indeed it took, it took some amount of time before I accepted, you know, the mission burrito. Um, but that, that had a lot to do with Cancun, both Gordo and then Cancun Taqueria. Oh yeah. You were like, super into Cancun. Oh, I still am like, Cancun. oh God, Cancun. So best salsa bar on the planet, the Horchata. I think, that, I think Cancun might've been the first place I ever encountered a salsa bar. 
really, once you've encountered that salsa bar, you cannot really, every other salsa bar pales in comparison. Um, <laughs> there's so much variety of flavor and heat. And like, I wouldn't even necessarily go for the super, the, the hottest one because some of the, some of the mediums were in miles were super flavorful. Right. Absolutely. Like it's not just about the scovins, but what's going into it. So, you know, it, it, it's very appropriate that, you know, it, I'm glad that as much as the, the instrument was ridiculous, the burrito uh, in the episode, it gave us an excuse to talk about burritos. So, And you know what? At this point, I'm happy to wrap the episode in a burrito. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And move on to the next one. Mounting this, the impossible summit of Mount Neverest. Um, this is a uh, Webby Dewey to some degree episode, um, but it, it's sort of it's the, the the character mixes are sort of split. Like Webby Dewey have a little thing going on with like this desire to sled down the mountain. Uh, Scrooge is well. Let me read the thing. So Scrooge and Huey are determined to be the first to set foot atop an impossible summit, but the snow-capped mountain holds a treacherous secret that tests both their willpower and survival skills. And that's true. Um, Scrooge and Huey are definitely mm. kind of in the lead here. Uh, Launchpad has sort of the main B plot. Uh, yeah, and this this is the first real Launchpad Launchpad beginning, middle, and end uh, plot we have, right? It's it, yeah, yeah. Like he's he's integral to the last episode, but mm-hmm. um, other than the Terraformians, uh, where he's just you know paranoid about about Molman monsters and is just there for absurd comic relief. He's barely a character here. He's still comic relief, but he's got this whole plot about being conned into buying stuff for ice fever that also um, brings a lot out of Louie has some of my favorite Louie lines. Mm, Yes. uh, Because, because of all this or or has my favorite Louie line uh, in that. And then um, yeah, like Webby and Dewey are, are paired off, but just with an amusement they're, they're, Usually, so far, when they've been paired off, as they will be in the next episode, they are the A plot. They're on something, or they're, or they're, they are the B plot, but they're advancing the overall arc of the show. Here, they're just out to have a lot of fun with each other, Um, and and I feel that does a lot to work to like stabilize their relationship status. I'll just say it that way. Like you know, they they (laughs) they feel like the most you know. Uh, of the pairings, like there's, they've got the most intricate or involved relationship of of anyone for Webby other than Lena or her grandmother. Um, I'm not and, sh- well, I'm not and, shipping pre adolescent ducks. I just want to be very clear here. I'm just saying <laughs> you know, that is not what is going on. Um, I'm not a dweber, whatever we might call that. So. <laughs> Sorry, I, I I wonder because I because because here I mean here you have a a very very clear uh, critique of the um, of this of the climbing Mount Everest thing you know like yeah. I I, I kind of wonder when this episode happened uh, relative to that famous photo of the of the Mount Everest traffic jam. I am certain. Mm. So the episode was released on December second, twenty seventeen. Mm, and I think that's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure. 
Uh, I'm just going to Mount Everest traffic jam. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, I believe th- that looks like that was uh, 2019. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. So two years before the photo goes good, viral. Good on you. Got Tales writer's room. Yeah. Because there's a base camp. At the so the episode starts off Scrooge giving a rousing like we're going to do something no one's ever done, uh like this is for the rarest of the rare, and uh, they show up and there's a tourist town at the base of Mount Neverest, um, uh, filled with all kinds of tchotchkes and garbage, uh, and um, yeah no they 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 were out ahead of that story because they they probably knew. Uh, uh, so yeah, good on definitely good on the writers' room. Um, and there's so there's two interesting things about the world of Ducktales in this one. Uh, well, one interesting thing, and then one kind of uh, reassertion. The, mm-hmm. the reassertion being that the, the big twist in the episode is that there are uh, basically dimensional portals around the mountain that prevent anyone from actually getting to the top of it, uh, which is why it's impossible to go to the top is there's just, you, you walk somewhere and then like you show up somewhere else or you jump and whatnot. And they use that to, to fun effect. And so just a reminder that even when things are seemingly mundane, there's just a level of metaphysical weirdness to this universe. And then the other thing is the fact that well, and 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 just just to just to jump in there, I it's there's something really lovely about it because it's it it's a well first of all watching it my guess is that something about these portals will come up later like if I was watching a say a Joss Whedon show and and there were these portals that popped up that served zero purpose you had no idea where they came from or where they were going and it served a purely thematic purpose the idea that you know that that scrooge's pride and drive to reach the top is a destructive and b you can never reach the top you can never you can never satisfy the urge to be the top buck so to speak and it's a natural law that you can't do. The natural law is made, is put into the narrative as these portals that prevent you from ever reaching the top of Mount Neverest. Um, but and even though they serve that thematic function, like my watching it, I was just like, oh, so these these portals have got to come back in some way somehow, right? Didn't answer that. Shrugging my shoulders, just just so you know. Um, <laughs> I will not comment one way or the other. But I love the portals. Like it was, it was such a, it yeah. was such, it was such thematic metaphoric storytelling. Well, and, and um, the other, and the other thing I like about it is like revealed late, right? Like yes, there'll there'll be times. There's something the, the there's there's something there's something reverse Scooby Doo about this <laughs> about this construction that they use on this show. Occasionally they'll introduce the supernatural element early on, but, but it almost feels like more often than not. Well, in the next one, they definitely are very early on. 
a real function of the show feels to be like that third act, you find out there was something mystical all along, right? Mm. Like even in the last episode with, you know, with, with Tathra, you know, it was definitely weird and absurd that those people had been living inside that pyramid for thousands of years at that point. And just, just right. we're just going to walk over that and not really concern ourselves too much. Right, and um, they have a garden that operates with one hour of sunlight a day or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's like, mm, sure, whatever. Um, you know, just completely not feasible. Uh, but but cartoon physics, okay, fine. But then, like, you know, after the revelation that it's just a Wizard of Oz situation with the mummy, they reverse that by having the mummy be real. It's like, nope, yes. you're still here in this world where magic is real. The supernatural has sway um and you know that and then i think the you know, that that happens with the introduction of lena uh and thus magica and just so much in the show where uh that current is running always um the 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 other thing here um is this is the episode i feel like where we first got the question how old is scrooge <laughs> right 75 years ago when he was uh, a younger duck and had just made his first million uh so clearly he was an adult by that point was when uh what was it M mallardy uh i can't remember the name of the first the first name of the guy but uh clearly based off mallory um uh you know let him up the mountain, but then cut him loose because uh, he was the Neverus Ninny uh, and was too concerned with being um, too cautious, too worried, uh, too tied to his money belt, literally, um, to make the trek and get all the way up there. Uh, and And you feel like it's a decidedly seminal experience for Scrooge, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know not wanting to let his caution hold him back anymore, like his biggest regret. But then also you're like, wait, but how old is he? Um, which is something that I, that I gotta tell you, the show is only gonna complicate even more going forward. Like Scrooge McDuck is not a normal mortal in any way, shape or form. Um, and I don't know, it doesn't necessarily go anywhere. I'll just say that right now. But it's it it leads me to like delve into the grander Ducktales lore, uh, and the and the Barks lore and the the '90s comics lore, and start to kind of understand just you know the, the job they've done to take this character who, in certain continuities, has a very specific life that happens in a very specific time frame, and somehow try to have that character, that exact character, who's a product of specific circumstances and still have him in the 21st century. Um, yes. Which is, which is fascinating for reasons I can't entirely articulate. I don't know why that interests me so much or what I think is going on there, but there's something about it that's more than just lore. That well, there, there's sense. something, there's something kind of planetary about it. 
and by planetary i mean warren ellis's planetary where you people that we're going to talk about today um but yeah (laughs) um so warren ellis comic book writer has a series called planetary for those of you who have not read it and the whole shtick with planetary is every single genre story that you have ever encountered everything from godzilla to tarzan the fantastic four to ghosts in hong kong are real and they've bubbled up into popular culture but they've also been suppressed and they've been suppressed to make the world seem more normal than it actually is and so there's a team the planetary team and they are archaeologists of these weird impossible things and they unearth them in order to demonstrate to the world that it is as strange and wondrous as you want it to be and one of the almost alchemical tricks of planetary is because these fantastical ridiculous things like tarzan are treated through this kind of gritty archaeological excavational uh frame they suddenly seem kind of real and they kind of lose their um uh fancifulness they kind of lose their like quaint rudyard kipling colonial sheen and they suddenly seem like a real part of the world and that's kind of the vibe I get with DuckTales and Scrooge McDuck. It's like his history, as ridiculous as it is, because the relationships between all of the the brothers and Webby are so grounded and so real and their characters are so consistent and clear, his long history of Indiana Jones style, slightly colonial adventuring and accumulating of wealth suddenly feels real. I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a internal pause. We're gonna the recording's not gonna drop, but I wanna I wanna make a a live footnote here, if you will. So one of the reasons why, and something that Zay and I will probably talk about afterwards, um, uh, because you know Warren Ellis. And Warren Ellis's comics definitely factor into uh, our own our own the, the narratology of our own friendship. Uh, recording this on the day that uh, some pretty serious and and very what looked to be very grounded uh, and and receipt laden. Uh, I don't want to even use the word allegations because I feel it's too light, but it's it's looking like Warren Ellis was seriously abusing his fame and position to uh manipulate younger women fans of his uh into what look to be emotionally abusive relationships want to put oh holy smokes i am not caught up on that oh you're not so yeah that's what we're going to talk about uh i thought you were talking about cameron fucking stewart no i well i found about cameron stewart in the context of what's going on with warren ellis so holy fucking shit oh my god (laughs) I thought at a certain point, once you started going deeper into planetary, I, I, no. I think I realized, no, no, I think I realized that you didn't know. So that's why I'm no, like, no, I did not know. That's, that's, oh, why I'm, that's, that's why I'm doing this right now is like, 
we're not being callous. We've got a lot to unpack there. A hell of a lot to unpack there. This is the DuckTales oh, show. Oh, good Christ. So just refer yourselves to, to that stuff. And then let me take a moment to say, I think you've zeroed in on something here about Scrooge. And we can also say that... The, the, I am so at, sorry. No, it's I okay. awful. No, no, no. It's all right. It's... We are okay. And what we have done is okay. What Warren has done is pretty fucking bad. And the saddest part about it, I, I first saw it because... Well, person... And totally unsurprising given the relationship between the protagonist and his stories and his female sidekicks. Someone, God, someone literally oh, said God. someone literally said the character of Yelena and trans and transmit uh just 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 took on a whole new dimension. Um yeah oh, it's God. it's it, it's one of those moments where it popped up and like everyone's like oh Lord and no one is shocked though. Like oh. no one and that's the thing that's we're we're gonna be doing a lot of unpacking this. We may, who knows? Maybe we'll leave the recorder on once we're unpacking. Uh, we'll do a separate thing. Uh, I I only laugh because it's horrific, and I laugh when it, when something's really bad. Um, the project that Ellis took on in Planetary uh, has an analog in the project that Alan Moore took on with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which sadly... Uh, far too many people know as the movie that Sean Connery stopped making movies <laughs> after it was made. Uh, the movie that had Alan Moore swear off Hollywood forever because the studio got sued uh, for, the, for by some rando screenwriter for stealing uh, his idea. And that offended Moore, who's, you know, very temperamental to say the least. I hope I didn't just get cursed because of that. Um, uh, and very protective of his work. Um, uh, made him, you know, give up on on Hollywood forever. Uh, but, and, and and League ultimately goes into some, like, it crawls a little bit too much of its own references. Uh, and and I, I, I couldn't rock through the, the last book or two of it. But the idea is... We're going to take all these pulp characters, we're going to take these pulp uh, folks and treat them like they're real to some degree or, or, or and mash them up together to see what happens. It was super popular as a genre even in the 90s uh, into the early aughts and uh, a, a, a giant case of re-examining, also very popular amongst British comic writers to do that. You can see more doing some of that in Supreme with him examining Superman as a figure. Uh, indeed, and indeed, like Ellis would go and write Supreme stories later on as well that also like examine this 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 whole project that on the one hand is an interesting gritty humanist take on these figures, and another is this attempt to examine the role that these figures and these story forms have in our culture in a way that is somehow metatextual in situ. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're right to zero in on, on that particular story for us, what, what th that this version of DuckTales seems to be doing with the figure of Scrooge is what does it mean that these things are real? Uh, what does that say not about 
the fictional world, but what does it say about the values that these characters and figures and archetypes as they exist in pop culture, what do they say about our world um, when the mystique is somehow slightly denuded from them? I, I think, I think that might, I think there's something in there. Um, yeah, sorry. I didn't, I, I'm, I, I did not, I'm, I'm, uh, okay. I, I, I nearly missed it today too. If, if, a, if, a, I, I hadn't really been, I hadn't looked at comics Twitter today. I'm kind of away from comics Twitter for the most part. Yeah. Um, and, but a friend, a friend on, uh, on Facebook, uh, 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 one of my Twitter friends, one of, there's like three people, oh, two people that I kind of really only know from Twitter, uh, who are Facebook friends and they, they got sick of Twitter and somehow but they're on Facebook. I don't, I don't understand it either. Um, but, uh, smart, smart guys, they just, they made a reference and I was like, what? And, and looked it up and I was like, oh, and again, even that first reference, it was just like, oh, so the guy who cultivated, you know, um, kind of a, a giant, you know, creepo vibe turns out to be a creepo. Shocking, you know, by which. Yeah, unsurprising. Not I, I, I mean, it, it's less, it's less that I. It's less that I'm surprised and more that uh, that I just talked about planetary for five minutes. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I only really dial in to like, basically I just check in with CBR like once every other day or so. And that's the only reason why I even caught the Cameron Stewart thing. And like, who the hell knows who Cameron Stewart is? Um, yeah, yeah uh, apparently this one, this one was jumping around. Um, I mean, multiversity... Uh, had it because that's the only link I, I i you know googled up and i was like what's going on and that was the first hit and i read and i was like blah. um right i, I mean well and this, i mean the the i don't want to put it in i don't want to i don't want to just walk away from this entirely um you know there's you you start to I don't know. Like there's, there's, there's a hell of a lot to unpack in that. And like, I think that's, that's, that's for some place out of the, the DuckTales space. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll just, I just will say, um, there's, there's a, there's a, the deep problem with celebrity and celebrity culture that we have extends into every place and that there are anything remotely like a celebrity, even something as tiny as comics. I mean, Ellis has, a, a, has had a, a, a long career at this point, uh, at this phase in the world. Um, and at this point, his career may be over at this point. Uh, it, would, it would not entirely shock me. Uh, he's transitioned into doing a lot of work for television and animation, something he was long going. He was always trying to escape comics and always being dragged back into comics and now may just be dragged into, you know, oblivion. Um, he, he is a, a, a person of seemingly a, a depressive temperament. So um, seeing cycles happen with, with folks like that, I don't know where that road leads. Uh, I'm not surprised. 
uh, I'm, I am disappointed that he would abuse his position. Um, and it's something that I see, we, we all know it happens and it happens in small scale and large scale. Um, so the only thing I think to say is just, you know, just don't let anyone get deified, <laughs> you know, like that's the, that's, that's the big thing. Um, you know, just, just when you see people playing the deification game, diffuse it, whether they're, um, whether they're being deified by someone and they're not necessarily encouraging it. And definitely if someone's trying to, you know, build a cult of personality around themselves, like just take, I mean, for, I mean, for, for, for Alice, I mean, he was. And like you know, full disclosure. I mean, I I've not read I've not, I haven't read any of his books. I haven't his novels. I I think I've read an Ellis comic in a long time. Um, but I do get his like his weekly email thing and some of his early work in particular, Transmet and Planetary are like uh important works for me yeah. and well, you know, there's something about, about um i don't know like like right now right, right right now my brain is swirling with lauren ellis jk rowling and roman polanski and why 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 is polanski on the brain well, I mean, because um, some, well, because my happen, or, or... no, 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 no. My, so my, 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 uh, my, my, my girlfriend, mm. um, uh, it's who is the movie watching? Exactly. Like okay, she, yeah. she is a recurring character here, and yes. her, her AFI, her watching all these AFI list movies has led her back to Chinatown, and she adores Chinatown. I mean, man, I mean, man, she loves Chinatown, and that sounds awesome. Like, I mean, I'm a film school screenwriting theater person so like for me chinatown has already been like you know metabolized or something um but like seeing it through her eyes has been kind of cool because she's like oh yeah i've never you know but in the back of your mind you're like look it's roman fucking polanski you know and um not only is he an asshole but he's just a monumental fucking asshole um and uh yeah. So the so like there's like this like some sort of like Roman Polanski, J.K. Rowling, Warren Ellis thing that's happening in my brain right now. Um, that I, that I, I can grok, I can definitely, I can I can grok on that. Yeah. I mean, well, and and you get in this mode where <laughs> what what's what's striking particularly about with with Rowling. I, I I read the back half of the Harry Potter books or the back third. Cause like mm -hmm. I didn't get into that universe until the Quran movie Azkaban. Um, yeah, and it, was, a good movie. it was a great, it was a great movie. And there's the moment when Harry's writing the hippogriff and mm -hmm. it, and that was a, and I, and I, there was such a sense of wonder to it. And I was watching it in yeah. a, it was a, it was a staff screening for the theater employee kids at the California upstairs, one of the small ones, but I was like down front. So like the screen was like extra big. Um, and it was, 
it was thrilling. And that moment with the hippogriff, like the moment of wonder, the Christopher Columbus movies, Chris Columbus movies, uh, not not the statue guy that's being torn down rightly. I'm talking about like the the, the yeah. sadly unfortunately the named Columbus movies are like yeah. they're like a quote of a quote of 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 a feeling of wonder. Yes, and and so they they had they had nothing in them for me whatsoever. And so like, okay, wait, wait. I I I'm, I hate to interrupt, but I have a way to claw us out of to claw me out of this moment, and I need yes, to articulate. Take it. Take it. So I am a writer and I am a totally, almost completely unsuccessful writer. And one of the ways I talk myself out of writing um, is by telling myself, oh, I'm, I'm a lazy person. I am a, I'm a, I'm a selfish person. I am a dumb person. I am whatever, like whatever, whatever it is I'd like to tell myself is a reason why I should not keep trying to keep writing. And um, a lesson that I have to keep learning is that whether or not you are crappy doesn't mean that you can't make good stuff. And even that, like, so whatever, like, wildly insecure thoughts and feelings I have, it is not a reason to think that I can't make good stuff. Because clearly, it doesn't matter. Your your character, which you know is an evolving, changing thing, it's not like a fixed thing. Nobody's fixed. Nobody's solid. Um, but your the 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 quality of your character, how you treat other people, or how you treat yourself, or whether or not you have the ability to re reflect on yourself, or self critique, or grow, is not what tells you whether or not you can make good stuff. So it's neither an excuse nor um, it's not, it's neither an excuse nor an exoneration. The quality of your. Okay. All right. Okay. I can go back to DuckTales now. We'll seal this one off here. There's, there's, there's some, I, I I I would I want to explore that's making me think thoughts, um, but the main course is in front of us for these three episodes, and <laughs> I don't want um, you know to let the revealed awfulness of you know someone who often revels in awfulness mm. uh as as a as a as a mask um or uh the awfulness of someone who 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 uh can't take her billions and just enjoy them um uh, dissuade us from some some true joy um because if we do that then one, they win, they get all of our attention, which is all they ever really wanted. Um, collateral damage be damned. And two, um, hmm, you know, thinking the worst about people is a thing that can extinguish hope. Mm 
and thinking that people you admired were were terrible kills the world and kills your soul a little bit which is exactly the crisis that Dewey Duck is facing in the spear of Celine. Yes. Um, <laughs> there we go with that segue. I'm going to call it out this time. Cause sometimes well, I, you got I, actually at, at, at the risk of being um, a horrible uh, podcast person, which, you know, whatever, um, just, just one step back. One of the things I really like about um, Neverest? Uh, the impossible summit of Mount Neverest which is a, which is a step uh, forward from uh, from the living mummies of Toth Ra is that the way out of that episode requires learning and change from Scrooge McDuck. Yes. And that leads into um, Spear of Selene. Um, yeah, and I really, really. Well, like that. And also Spear of Selene does another truly great and wonderful thing that made me so happy, which is it brings back my my the avatar of my best self, Donald Duck. Yes. Donald returns. Uh so the setup on this one, I won't I won't even read the thing. Um episode begins, they're flying. Uh Webby and Dewey managed to manipulate Launchpad into crashing the plane, something he was going to do anyway, but in a specific place, specifically the legendary Ithaquack, um, which is uh, not only, uh, and the reason why they're going is there's a temple there uh, in order to investigate the, mis the mystery of the, the Spear of Selene. So Webby and, and Dewey are looking for the Spear of Selene, which they believe is on Ithaquack. Uh, and Donald and Scrooge are very much not happy to be on Ithaquack because Ithaquack is also uh, the vacation island of the gods. And Zeus, father of the gods, uh, has a real problem with Scrooge McDuck because Scrooge McDuck is better than Zeus at just about everything. Um, Scrooge in this episode like ceases to be immortal <laughs> and kind of becomes a demigod in, in, in a, in a functional sense. Um, even though he has no powers, um, there's, and, and unlike Gladstone Gander, it isn't Scrooge's luck, which, you know, Lohi, you know, figured that Scrooge had the best luck in the world. Mm -mm, no, Scrooge has grit. Um, and it's Scrooge's grit that, uh, you know, enables him to like win any, any contest of skill Scrooge McDuck would win, even though Scrooge isn't facing this. Um, the, uh, one plot is about, uh, Storkules, uh, who is the standard for Hercules, who has decided who, who, for whom is fixated on the idea that Donald is his best friend. Which um, is hilarious. Yeah. And Donald is really not having it, <laughs> which which makes it even more hilarious. Um, but there's like a serious, there's some serious pathos with Donald, uh, mm -hmm. in, in that when Zeus finally lays down some challenges because he wants to prove by proxy that he's better than Scrooge by having Storkules beat Donald in a bunch of contests, um, Donald doesn't want to 
compete. He doesn't want to do adventures anymore because when people adventure, they get hurt and he doesn't want anyone to get hurt. Right. Um, and, and there's, there's just this, there's, there's just a sea of pathos underneath this episode. It's all revolving around Della Duck, uh, the boys' mother, Donald's sister, um, who at this point we know took the sphere of Celine. Uh, what that means, we don't know. Webby and Dewey go into the temple of Celine, looking for, uh, the, looking for the spear, looking for answers. Uh, and they go through a series of tests uh, where they keep on not getting the answer um, until, uh, and even, and they, they never, spoiler, you've watched it, they never get the answer to what the spear is, but they know what it isn't. And um, the thing that made me cry is, is by the end of the episode, Dewey's faith in his mother as being a good person has been restored. And this is an anxiety he's been carrying with him since uh, the great dime caper when he found out about the theft. And yeah. it, is, it is at this point that, uh, that, that there is a grand arc here is, is pretty much confirmed. Like this is, this is what, there's a big story that's being told. Uh, we already know there's a big story that's being told with Magica and Lena, but there's also a big story being told um, with Dewey's uh, Dewey's quest to find out what happened to his mom. Um, yeah, and 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 big stuff um, also emotionally. I mean, I think that we had a conversation I think a while back about why it is that Dewey doesn't talk to his brothers about this but the information that he gets about their mom and i think we i think we get some of the answer here which is that because he there's a sequence where he learned before they meet selene the god before the before he gets the information about his mom there's a sequence where it seems as if his mom may have hurt other people by stealing the the spear of selene um, and that she may be a selfish, profiteering adventurer as opposed to a hero. Yeah. And everything would, everything you'd worry Scrooge actually is. That maybe she like yes. she she's inherited, you know, not the direct descent, but she's got all the bad qualities of a of a member of the Duck clan. Yes. And he would rather not know than find out. To the point where he it's such a that's such an important part of of growing up because when you when you think of your parent as either a hero or a villain, um, eventually you have to learn that they're a person, and that's a very difficult uh, it's a very difficult step for everyone to just get that our parents are just you know folks <laughs> doing their best. Most of us don't actually have villains or saints as parents. Yeah, we, we, you know, we're not Storkules. We don't have Zeus, a god, as our parent. Um, right. we, we don't necessarily have one of the world's greatest retired adventurers in the form of Donald Duck, um, you know, shepherding us. We don't have, we definitely don't have Scrooge McDuck, the world's greatest adventurer, uh, shepherding us. Um, our parents might be 
a, a mystery to us to some degree. The, 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 the moment, the two moments of, of great emotionality, well, there's three. There's, there's Donald's moment where he's, I, I think this one comes, this might be the first one to come. He's like, someone gets hurt. And he's like, I don't want to do this because someone gets hurt. And you mm-hmm. just, you just get this, you, you get this vibe somehow like, you know, it's about Della. Like you don't, I don't think it's spelled out, but I, for some reason I'm really, it feels really clear. Maybe just because of the context of the episode that everything else is going on, you know, um, you know, it, it, the, the, the missing equation, like why would Donald feel this way? Well, this is sort of feels, I mean, it's built foreknowledge being backfilled. Um, the moment when they're about to go into the garden of Selene at the, the, the end of their quest, I mean, Webby and Dewey and Dewey shifted from being enthusiastic about finding out to being adamant that they don't go in there, that they do not learn. Yeah. And he and Webby fight physically fight. Yep. Um, he's doing everything he can to prevent her from, from learning the secret and Webby finally relents and is like, it's okay. I think it like takes his hand and says, we don't have to, it's okay. Yeah. And that enough is enough of a moment for him to take the beat and be, actually, no, that's not, he does, she doesn't take his hand at that moment. They stop fighting. She says, we don't have to, they take a beat. He takes her hand and says, I have to know the truth. And yeah. they they leap through before the room could close. Who knows how they were going to get out of the room? They didn't they didn't think that part through. Um, <laughs> we're like script through Unity will, will click in. That'll be fine. And and you know, another thing is like you know this is such a different Dewey than the Dewey of the of uh, the, the the pilot than the Dewey of even the last episode. Where it was all about we're looking for the perfect moment to go down the mountain, right? Like just the pure adventurer. He's finally confronted with a reason for adventuring, and he 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 he's got this resistance to it. But in having someone else, in having his partner, right? Again, I am not shipping pre-adolescent ducks, but in having his partner. <laughs> Um, maybe I am a little, uh, but only, only, only on a mature emotional level by having his partner say, we don't have to do this. This is, this is a big enough deal for you that if you're not ready, we can let this go is what gives him the strength. Like he knows that she'll back his, whatever, whatever's going to happen, whatever emotional reaction he's going to have, she's going to. She's going to support that process. And yeah. there's a lot can be done to talk about how like, oh, we've got a woman supporting a man through this. You know, it's like there's things we could unpack there, but you know, not right. This is definitely this is a this is a moment for for Dewey. And I think there's there's plenty other places where Webby has massive agency. Um yes. so that you know, you, you, you can have a moment where Webby is literally being a supporting character, uh, and it doesn't negate her, her, her character or her character growth. If anything, what it does is it, is it cements these two 
as the emotional core. Um, and, and the, the more, and also, I mean, like there's, there's ways in which like Webby's, the risk to Webby's soul that will sometimes happen as we go down or that we've, we've been through before in, in other adventures. Um, you know, this, this is, uh, this is critical, you know, like, you know, Webby's definitely, Webby's the heart of this show in a way that she never was in the old show. And in a way, at least to me, feels not cynical in the least. Huh. It, it's funny because I, I would... Webby to me seems like... Dewey seems like heart. Web, Webby seems like... I mean, I don't know what's going to happen next. Webby seems more like the actual heir of Scrooge. Like, she's the one who really, truly enjoys adventure for the sake of adventure. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to see, and I imagine at one point we are going to see this because I, 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 I do not know that this is true, but I, I can only guess that at some point we will meet Della Duck. I wonder, I wonder what will happen with the other boys, you know, because like Huey and Louie, very clear characters but they're not the open heart that dewey is you know and when they are confronted by the return of their mother in whatever form it takes uh, and maybe even confronting or dealing with the fact that uh their brother was hiding all of this from them uh, i wonder how how that will be told how that beat will unfold <laughs> or another um <laughs> I, i'll say this much we're we're on episode 10 mm. this season ends mm. with episode 24 so we've okay. got 14 more episodes to go before we wrap this season and I will say, as I scroll through the list of things, no, no, we'll revisit this. We'll try and revisit this moment at the end of season one for a specific okay. reason, because what's fun about the end of season one is like past, past the night. I don't know either. So, um, uh, so yeah, there's, there's, there's definitely, but, but this was also the one that hooked this, this was the, this was the episode where I went from liking the show to loving the show mm. because the show could move me about the characters journeys and the characters arcs and demonstrated a real heart that, and, and a real heart that didn't have cynicism in it, but that, was aware of cynicism as a force mm -hmm. in the world, right? I mean, 
Zeus is such a cynical character, right? The god of hospitality who just wants to be known as hero of the beach. You know, like he like a traditional Scrooge McDuck villain, just someone who wants glory, 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 uh, who doesn't care what he does to get it. Um, who has all the power in the world and wastes it on petty things um, versus these, you know, these characters who are trying to learn, you know, great mysteries about, about their own lives, about their own history. Yeah. And maybe rewrite it a little bit as they go. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm very very uh, I'm happy to be back in this, and I'm excited to see where all of this is going. Yeah. Our next three episodes, because <clears throat> I feel like that's a good space to end, end it on, and then yeah, we'll we'll shut down the recorder, and then maybe <laughs> we we've done most of the breakdown, but there's a few things I want to like talk about about what we talked about earlier. Um, beware the buddy system, the missing links of Morshire, and mystery at McDuck Manor. And Ooh. I I won't I won't always do this, but I am I'm looking forward to talking the mystery missing links of Morshire with you. I won't say more than that. And it has it is I except that it it is for for none of the reasons that we talked about anything today. There's, 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 there's no, there are no ties other than the fact that DuckTales characters are in this episode. It's the characters we know and love. But this, this, that for me, that's the highlight of the coming set. And I wouldn't normally do that, but, the, but I've been, I've been excited. This, this, this one might've also been one of the episodes where I was like, I gotta talk to somebody about this shit. <laughs> like, spawn the desire for a, <laughs> for for some kind of examination um yeah i'll leave it at that so fantastic we hope you enjoyed this episode if you're just discovering this feed we've got hundreds of episodes about all things immersive and a whole website no proscenium that's dedicated to that all of which is made possible by our Patreon backers. Follow us at No Proscenium on Twitter and Facebook, and learn how to support our work at patreon.com slash The episode features the tracks Battle of the Pogs, The Adventure, and Dance Contest to the Music from the album Poopy's Incredible Adventures by Kumiku via the Free Music Archive and used under a Creative Commons license. Check out more at freemusicarchive.org. Until next time, remember, any crash you can walk away from 